Hey creatives, you're listening to The Truth is Golden, a podcast produced by Revelator Studio and hosted by yours truly. My name is Arno, welcome to this episode. It is a show about creative minds, what makes them tick, their successes, failures, and everything in between. It is for people who are interested to learn more about creativity and its potential to make the world a better place. Aussie architect and internet entrepreneur Nick Granlees did his interview with us during his last visit in Toronto. He talked about his shoeless upbringing in rural Australia and how during a sabbatical early on in his career, he decided to hop on his motorcycle, quit architecture and become a photographer. Subsequently, his path led him to create Bowerbird, a growing online platform that links architects with publications. Listen in to hear Nick speak about his path. So we're here with uh, Nick Granlis, founder of Bowerbird in, uh, in Toronto. Thanks, Nick, for being on the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much for having me on the show. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more about who you are and what you do? I'm an Australian. I uh, studied architecture many years ago and practiced for several years and then became an architectural photographer, which led to creating a startup called Bowerbird, which is a platform that architects and journalists use to source content for architectural stories. Very interesting. So we'll get back to that in a little bit, but I want to go back to your childhood and uh, ask you where did you grow up and what you were like as a kid? Yeah, I grew up in a little town called Coranda, which is in the north of Australia, so hot and tropical. Had a 300-meter waterfall at the backyard. Uh, I didn't wear shoes until I was probably 13, so it was quite a free lifestyle, with lots of forest and uh, beaches and so forth. And I stayed there until I was about 17 when I left the university. And so what were you like as a kid? Were you creative, carefree? Describe I, that for us, please. Yeah, absolutely. I, I grew up in a property with about 11 acres of forest, so I sometimes think that my first impression of space and architecture was trees. And I would run freely down there, we'd build tree houses, and we'd, we'd always able to make things. So we could, if we wanted a BMX track, we would just go and make a BMX track. And I always liked that idea that you had the ability just to create these things if you wanted to go create them. And so what, did you have an inkling of what you wanted to be growing up when you were a kid? Well, my father was a carpenter, so I spent a lot of my sort of school holidays and in-between time on site, basically sat in the car watching him build things or packing up tools or, you know, and a lot of sketching. So I used to sit in the car just sketching over and over and over. And my dad always wanted me to become an engineer. So during high school, I studied all the maths and sciences and failed atrociously. <laughs> and so I, I ended up um, being directed more towards architecture. So I was always more interested in the design and the drafting and the, the drawing of it. And uh, it was only later that I would actually think about anything to do with maths or science. Were there at any point any other careers that you considered taking on? I think when I was about 14, I thought about becoming a pilot. And so my mum organized for me to go on a, uh, a flight in a small system. But now I think about becoming a pilot, and I just think that would be a very boring job in some ways. Um, so in my research uh, in preparation for this interview, I've come across this idea of you being a para-architect. Can you explain that to us, please? Yeah, this was an article, I think, maybe five years ago, talking about, I guess, leaving architecture itself and then doing something which is connected to architecture, but it's not the, the day-to-day job of designing buildings or getting them built. And so there was an 
I've was coming into contact with quite a few people who had become architectural photographers or they had become writers or they're doing something to do with architecture. And some people were describing themselves as architects. And I always thought it was another term for it because it wasn't really architecture. It was kind of muddying those waters. But para-architecture was a term which sort of just described that you're part of that community, you're part of that industry, but doing something off of centre. Did you leave the architectural practice and become a photographer? And what was that transition like? Uh, I, I started that transition about 2010. I'd been practicing for a couple of years. I was only about 30 at that stage, so I hadn't been practicing for a particularly long period of time. But I had already I picked up a camera and that had become an outlet. So the day-to-day grind of architecture was sort of taking me away from the creative side of things, like dealing with thousand-page specifications and so forth. And so the, the camera for me was this thing I could do where I didn't have a client, where I could walk outside, I could explore the world, and I could be creative under my own terms. And so in 2010, I decided I wanted a break just to see how um, people I went to university with were mm-hmm. practicing, to see how were they doing architecture and, and could I do it in a different way. So I jumped on a motorbike, which I had in the north of Australia, and I just started riding. I had intended to actually ride all the way to Italy, but I ended up in Melbourne instead. And along the way, I was just popping in to see friends and to see their practices and to see who had, who was succeeding, like who was, who really enjoyed what they were doing, who had an amazing lifestyle and who was happy. And I guess along the way, that just sort of led me down this weird path where I was taking more photos and I wasn't ready to go back and practice. And so I, I got to Melbourne and I decided not to go get a job um, working for another architect because that's quite hard to go back from when you've been um, a director in a firm. Mm-hmm. And so I started working with the Australian Institute of Architects, which was sort of a buffer job for a couple of years where I was organising talks and I had this opportunity to speak to all these architects in Melbourne and actually understand what they were doing or what inspired them and sort of propose talks to them based on what I was actually interested in. Um, and then that eventually led to uh, doing photography full time. And how has it been since? It's been good. I feel like in some ways that's where everything started. Before that, I was quite fixed in a process of what it was to be an architect. Here's what your practice is meant to look like. And I guess I was always struggling with that, questioning why do we practice in this way? Why, why is this what work is? Whereas once I let go of that, it was liberating to be able to say, okay, I want to be a photographer, but... I don't want to be trapped in a certain process. So I want to mm-hmm. actually design that. So using design skills to actually think about um, what your day-to-day life will be. And so that was fantastic. And then once I was free to do that, to actually do photos, it allowed me to do other projects as well. And that excited me, especially being able to move, mm-hmm. uh, whereas architecture can be quite grounding. Like you're, you're sort of working in a, a certain location for a long period of time, especially if you're building up clients and a reputation. So were you, before you switched to photography, were you practicing in Melbourne or were you somewhere else? No, I was practicing up in Cairns. Okay. So I had studied in Brisbane and then done exchange in Italy and, and then sort of came back and had to go back to Cairns for family reasons. And I had never intended to stay there in a small town. And so a small practice there, worked with some other architects um, when I just first came out of university. But when I went to Melbourne, it was really as a, I call it next grade, big sabbatical where I got a bit of time to take a breath and recharge and decide what I actually wanted to do. 
So I, I've personally been to Melbourne years ago, I think it was 2006, so it must have changed quite a bit since, but I was always amazed, and I think it's true of Australia as a whole, but especially Victoria, amazed by the quality of architecture and the, the dynamism of the industry. What's your take on that? Yeah, I think in Australia, Melbourne is the heartland of architecture, in a way, not to put anybody off who's from Sydney, because there's always this rivalry. But in my mind, it had always been the city that I wanted to go to as an architect, and I wanted to live in the city. And then after having been there now for about seven or eight years, it's clear that there's a culture that's quite different there. And now that I'm starting to jump out to these other cities around the world and actually spend a lot of time with other architectural communities, it's clear that there's, there's a combination of lots of architecture students, lots of um, great firms over the last 20 years who have trained architects who have then split off to create their own firms. There's also something to do with there's enough small projects so that young architects can cut their teeth. So being able to renovate old buildings and being able to create cafes where that creativity starts to build. And I think that has created something where it's more acceptable now to, for the general public to actually use an architect. Mm -hmm. And so when I look at it, I, I can wander around the streets of Melbourne now and you just see all these little projects popping up everywhere and that's it's kind of like watching flowers bloom. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so where do you think that culture of design is such a strong um, belief in the, in the power of design, I guess? Where do you think that comes from? I mean, you've touched on that a little bit, but do you think there's something in particular that... I'm not sure, but now that, for example, I'm traveling in Canada at the moment and looking at other communities, that's one of my big questions is, well, why is this community flourishing and how do you identify other cities around the world which have a similar sort of um, the ingredients that lead to that? Mm -hmm. My guess is it's a combination of having a university in a city where you've got enough people who are being trained as architects, the ability to actually put that into practice. So if there's no work in a town, obviously people can't actually practice what they've learned. Uh, Melbourne also is very collegial. So architects work together as a community. So they're not seeing each other necessarily as competitors or competitors. They, I was amazed because I was coming from a small town and going to Melbourne, which is quite a large city, mm -hmm. how open and friendly architects actually were mm -hmm. and how they wanted to support the next generation. And that as a city changes architecture. I don't think architecture is, at least at a city level, happens because of one architect. It happens because you've got this entire group of people who are all working towards something, and that starts the snowball effect. But I'm just guessing it. No, it makes a lot of sense, because um, some of the cities that we consider being at the level of Melbourne or higher in terms of the quality of design and the quality of the community are much bigger than Melbourne. I'm thinking about Chicago, maybe New York, Los Angeles, because it's a crazy place and people do crazy shit. Um, but a city like Toronto, which is slightly bigger than Melbourne, but let's, for sake of the argument, say it's about the same size, um, is much more conservative. I think we're starting to see what you described maybe a couple decades ago here, where you see a lot of smaller, very design projects popping up. But it's, uh, it's an interesting idea, and I like the, the thought about the community, because I think that's, that's the key. I think there's a couple of other elements that I'm starting to see as well. So one is, sometimes you just see the um, bylaws change within the city, which suddenly allows something to be created. So being in Vancouver, what I saw was all these breweries suddenly, they're being designed and created. 
So that's that one change in probably the way that the law works around selling alcohol created mm-hmm. this whole industry. The other thing I see is some communities have embraced photography and others haven't. So, and that's not just to pitch architectural photography being an architectural photographer. That's looking at it and saying, ah, oh, it's clear that it's really hard to see the architecture within a city unless it's being photographed. And so it largely goes hidden. And if it's hidden, it makes it hard for the public of that city to understand how much architecture may be going on there if it's hidden behind closed doors or in a, a private space. Mm-hmm. And so once a, a community starts to go, okay, part of our architectural process is to photograph that and then to share it, I think that it creates a cycle where more people within a city think of architecture, engage architects, and so it builds and builds and builds. So keeping that in mind, and I want to get a little bit specific here, uh, specifically around Toronto, because I think we really need it. Um, but for any architect or designer out there, what would you, what would be your two or three pieces of advice in terms of how to communicate around their projects and, and putting them out there? I think the, I mean, obviously, we'll probably dig into Bowerbird a little bit more about the storytelling elements. Mm-hmm. But I think what it is is the you need a community of architects to start photographing their work and to start sharing that work. So I don't think it's an individual architect within a city who's amazing and suddenly that will change everything. But I think it, there's a tipping point when you end up with, let's say, 20 architects within a city who are actively telling their stories because that's when you start to get enough impact uh, within the, the general public. And it's the general public who are going to drive that architecture. So when you talk about actively telling their story, are you talking about them taking control of narrative or just getting published? I think it's both. I think it's going part of the architectural cycle is a storytelling element at the end of it. Whether that's doing something like Open House, which is a program which is huge in Melbourne now, but it's all over the world, where the city opens up its doors uh, to architecture. So when architects finish projects, let's say 40 buildings around the city open up and the general public can come out and they can go explore these buildings firsthand. Mm -hmm. And we end up with queues of hundreds of people outside these buildings because they want to see this amazing architecture. That's part of that storytelling. And the same thing with uh, having photos done of your project and actually getting those photos published. I think that's actually something that architects need to consciously see as important for their community and not just their practice. So you're, you're advocating publishing projects as a way to bring architecture up in the, in the overall community, in the, I guess, in the cultural psyche. Absolutely. I think when, you, when you're able to allow, let's say, journalists to be able to tell more stories, mm-hmm. that naturally leads to something I guess it's basically marketing or it's um, advertising, if you want to use that word in a, in a sense, or it's a, a way of communicating something which is otherwise it's going to be hidden. And it's clear that in every other industry, when you start talking about something, that escalates the number of people using something. So if you look at Apple, for example, mm-hmm. you know Apple has billboards for a reason. Apple tells people about their products because they want more people to use their products. In my mind, architecture works in the same way where if we're not telling people about architecture, it's, it's not um, unreasonable to think that less people would want architecture and vice versa. So would you claim that um, architects who complain about not getting enough exposure but are not necessarily doing a whole lot around getting their projects out there are part of the problem? 
and there's a need for a change in the attitude of architects towards the public? Yeah, in some ways. So I'll give you an example. In Melbourne now, the number of architects who are getting things photographed and providing that content, which just happens to be through Bowerbird, but really it could be just the ability to make that content accessible, mm -hmm. is getting to such a level that we're seeing uh, general public publications like newspapers or real estate sites opening up new channels or sections in their, their publication around architecture. So these websites might see millions of people go through them. And before that content was available, they couldn't actually tell architectural stories because the, the cost of sourcing those stories was too high. Mm -hmm. The cost of actually them engaging photographers or them sending a journalist out to uh, report on a piece of architecture which they probably didn't even know existed because it wasn't online, it was hidden. Mm -hmm. So once you actually get that critical mass, now a publication like your local newspaper can actually go, okay, here's the content. We only need one story per week. Now we have 50 stories per week. That's actually something which is going out to the general public and that starts that cycle moving. Yeah, that sounds great. So we've mentioned Bowerbird a few times, so I think it's time for you to tell us more about this. Um, can you start with the, the mission and the purpose of that enterprise and tell us what you're, what you're looking to accomplish with this? Yeah, I guess um, there's the really basic use of it, which is architects upload content, journalists use that content. So that's the practical side of it. And that's, that happens globally. So architect in Melbourne, Toronto, wherever it may be, uploads that content, but then plugs into journalists locally, internationally, and so forth. What our mission is generally is to democratize architectural media. So the idea that 20 years ago, there was a handful of publications, maybe four, in any one given area in the world, mm -hmm. which an architect had access to. And maybe one or two of those publications matched the type of architecture you were doing. So mm -hmm. let's say you're doing residential. The number of places you could get published was incredibly small. And the number of stories that that publication could tell was incredibly small. Let's say they published five to 10 stories per issue. They might have six issues per year. Mm -hmm. There's a mass equation there that says they can only publish X number of stories. Compared to the number of architects, that's really small. Mm -hmm. And so what we've seen is this huge explosion of publications, both online and in print, that actually can access content from all over the world now because we can transfer images, we can connect in a better way. So we've got way more publications and we've got way more architects. But what we had happening was the same architects getting published over and over and over in the same magazines. So by being able to connect those two groups, you open up all these stories which were otherwise hidden. And I kind of use the term dusty photos, where maybe the architects had their project photographed, but it's been sitting in their drawer. This now opens up all these stories within a city and allows way more architectural storytelling, which is less about the architect and it's more about what's actually happening on the ground, who's mm -hmm. working on these different projects, especially small architects mm -hmm. who they can't afford to have a massive media team in-house, and so they haven't really been thinking about it. Well, this allows them to actually be part of this flow of content and journalism and storytelling now mm -hmm. in a much simpler way. I see. So do you think there's any downsides to a massive increase in the number of projects being published and talked about? or are there only benefits? Because when comparing what the architecture publishing industry used to be, which is a few magazines for any locale, and now it's basically global access to dozens of magazines, hundreds of blogs, what would be the downside of too much content? 
I guess the downside would be if you were one of the few architects who were privileged to be part of that old closed network, and then suddenly that's being opened up, the competition is increasing, then you will have lost your advantage. But the reality is that was happening anyway. So the reality is Instagram basically democratised storytelling. So as a bit of a segue and a bit of a story mm. around publishing, one of the things we did was map out when architectural publications were established. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to graph out how quickly were architectural publications being created over the last hundred years. And if we go back to, let's say, the 1890s, there were a handful of publications which were created by large organisations like institutes of architects around mm -hmm. the world. They were journals. And over the next 80 years, there was very little progress in the number of publications being created. There was a few standouts like Domus who were created maybe around the 1930s, 1940s. But it wasn't until the 1980s that we saw a huge increase in print publications. And that was because we had the desktop computer come out and we had desktop publishing. That doubled the number of publications that had been created in the last 80 years. Then we had the internet come in. And then in the early 2000s, we had this explosion of online publications, mm -hmm. but also the connection of architects from around the world. So if you think about, if you went back 30, 40 years, even getting images to a publisher would have been incredibly difficult because you have to send film. Mm -hmm. Now we can transfer images um, through email. And then eventually you get to Instagram, which is the full democratization process where every architect now can sign up for a free account and start telling their story. And it's instantaneous. And it's instantaneous. So that's the changing landscape. Mm -hmm. And so now that's already happened. So the question is, what do we do with that? And I guess Bowerbird is part of the answer. Um, where do you see Bowerbird and yourself also as an architectural photographer going in the future? I think our big process at the moment is to take Bowerbird to different cities and different architectural communities. So that's why we were in Vancouver and now we're in Toronto. And we'll be, what we're basically doing is looking for groups of people who want to share more architecture. And taking that to a global level where there must be cities all over the, the country, the world, which have amazing stories, but probably didn't connect, connect in very well mm -hmm. with the journalists because everything works on networks. It's basically people who know somebody or they build up relationships. And we're trying to make it simpler to know what each city is doing or what each group is doing. So for example, we partner with Passive House. Well, Passive House has all these beautiful projects, but they may not be getting them photographed as well as they could. So we encourage them to go get their projects photographed and then we give them the connections to the journalists so that those stories can be told. Do you see yourself continuing as a photographer? I think I will as at a personal level mm -hmm. and I'll continue to choose the projects that I want. But for me personally at this moment, I, my drive is to see this thing flourish and to see Bowerbird jump um, from being just a Melbourne-based platform mm -hmm. and jumping into becoming more of a, a global connector for publications and architects. So let's go back to uh, talking about yourself a little bit. I have uh, a few questions around creativity and, uh, and delve a little deeper in your career. Um, could you point out to one pivotal moment in your career and what would that be? I think at this point, it'd probably be when I left architecture. And that was primarily freeing myself from this idea that I had to design a building. And I was then allowed to design other things. And I was allowed to work on different projects. And instead of always looking at the world as, here's a problem I want to solve, and here's the building design I was going to do, now I get to say, okay, here's a problem that I'm interested in. But it may have something to do with bricks and mortar, but it may also have something to do with coding something or 
travelling somewhere or meeting mm. with somebody to try and actually um, to solve that problem rather than just um, designing something for it. So would you describe your current lifestyle as more creative than before? Yeah, absolutely. I feel far more free in what I do. I mean, there's a lot of focus that comes into once a project gets large enough. So Bowerbird's past that stage where it's a, a small project where I can spend a month thinking about it. It's now what's going to happen with Bowerbird over the next five to ten years. And you start to become responsible with the people that you work for or the people that use it. But at the same time, we've sort of designed the entire company now so that we don't get trapped in some of the things which I think kill creativity or mm-hmm. happiness and lifestyle, which that's what I felt that I was being trapped with within architecture. Um, so now the idea of what does it mean to wake up and really want to do whatever it is that you're doing. Like, for example, uh, our team really enjoys traveling. So we actually like this idea now that we have to physically go to a city to meet that architectural community. Mm-hmm. So trying to build that in um, has been a big part of, of what we do. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So what's the importance of creativity in your life and career? I think that's purpose, really. Being able to wake up and have something to do and a reason to do it rather than simply being lost. I mean, that's not very well articulated, but... No, it actually makes sense to... That creativity only gives you a sense of purpose. It's, it's a pretty powerful thought. Yeah. Um, so on that, where do you find your inspiration if there's any specific places? Inspiration. I think I really enjoy questioning things. So being able to... I like that principle from Toyota, like the five whys that they use a lot. Mm-hmm. So you ask something five times, like, why is this so? Why is this so? Why is this so? And then trying to come up with a potentially a different way of doing things. I mean, you may come back to the same way that everybody does something, but at least you've gone through that thought process to deconstruct something and then decide how you're going to do it, whether that's photography, architecture, what have you, which is what draws me to startups, this idea that you want to test an idea and you want to understand, is this going to be able to be something that's different and change something which you, you're trying to change? Do you have a particular creative process or practice or something that you do regularly that keeps you on your toes? Our design process like internally now, because we design an app, so mm-hmm. that's sort of changed from designing buildings. But we internally, we know that there's certain things that we do which we find work really well for us. So if you imagine you're designing an app, you have a lot of freedom to do all sorts of things and restraining yourself from doing all of them mm-hmm. becomes important. Mm-hmm. So we have two things which we... Uh, really enjoy now. We have one which is called a walk and talk, where this works in very small groups. But sometimes you you get given challenges of how do you how do you do X? Especially imagine you're dealing with seven thousand users on a platform. You can't make everybody happy, or you've got dynamics that you're trying to balance, and we don't know what the answer is, and there's not a simple answer. But we find that when we walk and we th- sort of thrash out an idea and sort of open it up we actually come to solutions and they can be really simple solutions. Mm-hmm. So we found that's incredibly powerful. So you're talking about walking meetings? Walking meetings, yeah. Walking meetings and just, I guess, the ability to throwing out ideas, which we find if we do that same meeting at a desk and a table, it becomes too controlled. It's sort of like we're trying to solve a problem. Whereas a walk and talk, you're sort of, you're just going for a walk and talk. You can talk about anything. You're allowed to run onto topics which have nothing to do with what you're trying to solve. But somehow you open up all these boxes and then eventually you try and pull them all back to a solution. But that works for us. Did you know that this was uh, Steve Jobs' favorite way of meeting people? No, I didn't realize that. Mm-hmm. That's how, uh, how he got a lot of his ideas, yeah. 
Um, the other one that we've been working with is um, we do a lot of whiteboarding sessions now, mm -hmm. and especially as we've we've now got a remote team, so it becomes harder to do a walk and talk. We're mm -hmm. just having to try and figure out how to do that. We're going to try and do a few well, a few sort of remote Skype walk and talks, but it's hard with time zones and yeah, people being different times of the day. Doing a walk and talk with somebody who's just woken up, with somebody who's just say, done eight hours of work, doesn't work in the same way. But um, yeah, we definitely do whiteboarding sessions where we try to draw things. So maybe that's an architectural trait that's just sort of flowed on. Mm -hmm. Where for some reason, if we get a marker and put it up on a board, things start to make far more sense. But we do anything where there's a design problem where we need the entire team. That's probably where we come back to. So how big is your team now? The team's three people. So it's myself, it's Ben Morgan and Christian. And so Ben and I are both in Melbourne. Ben's background is he's a design journalist, so he came on first, which is sort of the two halves of the coin of what we're doing with Albert. Mm -hmm. And then Chris has come on board, uh, he's a Canadian, so he's sort of led the charge over here and sort of building communities in Vancouver and now Toronto and so forth. It's exciting. So let's talk about uh, failure and the lessons. Um, before we do that, let's talk about risk. What would be the biggest risk you've ever taken? I guess the biggest risk was giving up um, a career in architecture. I could have stayed in that and probably, you know, joined some large firm and stayed in that firm and eventually become a director or so forth. That would have been a relatively safe journey. Mm -hmm. um, giving up on that, especially when when you go and study something and you, know, you dedicate more than ten years of your life to something, mm -hmm. to to change direction is quite daunting because it's it's connected to your identity. So I still identify as an architect even though now I've sort of jumped into photography and now jumping into the startup world. But deep down, I always feel that I'm an architect. I feel the same. I literally practiced as an architect for six months in my career. I still describe myself as an architect. Yeah, I don't know if I'll ever really escape that. And uh, every now and then I have to pull out a sketchbook and you know, do a design around architecture and so forth. And, uh, but, you know, that's, that's part of the formation years. So that's, that's probably the hardest part. And... I guess it's the first years after that where you kind of feel like, what am I doing here? So I had a career, I had an education, and now I'm playing with a camera and I'm you know, trying to build this whole new business and then I'm jumping into the startup world. I think that changes once you, you have success in whatever you're doing and you're confident in the path that you're taking. Mm -hmm. So now I look back and I couldn't think of anything worse than being stuck in a job, like the same job for all my life. And I feel privileged that now I get to work on these projects, knowing that I have no idea where my bellbird is going to take me in the next five or ten years, and that's part of the excitement of it. So one of your fellow uh, Australians, um, Andrew Maynard, has been very vocal about the, the way the industry is set up and run. Uh, what's your take on that? I think there's some truth to that. I, like my take on the industry is that we, we've been handed down a process from a previous generation. And despite all the design skills that we have, we haven't thought about redesigning how we work. Now, part of that is because we also work with all of these other very static industries like engineers and town planning and council regulation and so forth. So it's not as easy as just reinventing that. But it's amazing that we've just gone through a couple of decades of huge change in the world where we see startups coming up all the time. And I feel that architects need to reinvent themselves and to question how do they work or how do they want to work. And I know Andrew's been quite um, good at redesigning how he wants to work, deciding how large he wants his firm to be and being able to follow the designs that he wants to do. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, in many ways, Andrew's been a role model in that sense. And we use Andrew as a case study when we talk to other architects about, okay, go do the work that you really want to do. And that will follow, you know, the good work will come back by doing, if you get trapped in that cycle of doing work that you don't really want to do, you're going to be stuck trying to feed this monster and going in a really, you know, dead-end direction in my view. So what would be uh, Maynard's impact on the Australian design culture? Uh, it's been huge. I mean, pretty much everyone in Melbourne knows who Andrew is. I think he's also part of a bigger culture. So, you know, almost every architect in Melbourne has come from other firms. And so this has been going on for at least a generation or two now, if not more, mm-hmm. on this all building up. I still feel that most architects work in the traditional format. And that hasn't been challenged in any great extent yet. It almost feels that if you challenge it too much, then you're no longer an architect. Mm-hmm. And that's, so for example, if you challenge what is the purpose of an architect, maybe it is to actually become the developer or to build something, or suddenly you're not the architect anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that's where we're going to find really exciting change within architecture. And I think that speaks to the insularity of the design culture as a whole, where anything that doesn't fit a little box is kind of shunned. And uh, you see a few people here and there, and there's a couple in Toronto that are doing things differently. There's a few in the States that are like developer architects, but they're kind of outliers and they're not really talked about in the design industry. So I find that very interesting. I think the other element there, which is really interesting, there's a um, firm in Melbourne called Breathe, uh, led by Jeremy McLeod. Mm-hmm. And there's this whole movement happening now around these projects, which are called the Nightingale projects. And this is a form of, uh, I guess it's a, it's less about a design process and more about a process of how to get a building off the ground. So architects have come together, pulled their money to buy a site, and then there's a group of people, which I think the waiting list is up to 800 people, who then buy these buildings off the plan. And the entire building is regulated in price and how you sell it. And there's all these rules, but basically what it tries to do is, at least my understanding is, to change the way that we fund buildings and the way that developers work. Because if we're using the same ingredients, we end up with the same outcome. And this changes that. So that the people living in these buildings, the idea is they don't just flip the apartments, they're going to be living there. And so the design quality jumps up. And so Jeremy started this and then basically open sourced all the information. And so now all these other architects within the city are starting to develop these projects in the same way. Mm-hmm. And it's basically removed the need for a developer and opened up opportunities of, you know, what are the architects really trying to achieve here? And I think that's fascinating. It's again, it's getting away from bricks and mortar. So when architects are always trying to design their way out of a problem, like they see something within the city or society that they're trying to fix, and they keep saying, well, if I change the brick, if I do this, this would be a great solution. Whereas sometimes it's the underlying model, which is broken, mm-hmm. and that's the design problem. Yeah, it's looking beyond the surface, which is the, the actual design. It's the visible part, the manifestation of that project, and how, and looking more into how it's put together. I think that's very clever. Um, and this is a, a very topical issue here because the city is booming and we have condos popping left and right, many of which are subpar quality. And I'm not going to blame the developers because it's not necessarily all their fault, but there's definitely a change in the culture that's needed. Yeah, it's amazing. We can blame the developers all we want, or we can create and propose an alternative. It takes a lot of commitment to actually... Uh, run those sorts of projects where the architects are funding the, the site or to figure out a way that it can be done. But once you do that, then you can start to change that overall culture within a city and hopefully people don't really want that condo, which is vanilla flavour 
of almonds and they can actually design something which is good to live in and it's healthy and has good light and so forth. Yeah, yeah, it's not cookie cutter solutions to the same problem over and over. We didn't get there, so I want to go back to failure. What would be your biggest failure? Biggest failure? I think I failed a lot um, once I left architecture, trying to get these ideas off the ground. And so it, was, it felt like a constant failure for the first several years, where you would come up with an idea, you would try and do it, and I guess those ideas were always much larger than I was. And so the failure was that, the, I guess, internal failure. So rather than going, this project failed, it's more feeling like that you're failing. Mm-hmm. And it's not until the momentum changes. And once the momentum changes, it's no longer a failure. The momentum changes and you go, ah, oh, that was just part of the failure process which takes you to whatever you're trying to do. But if I stopped at anywhere along that point, going back to architecture, there would have been years there which felt like that was a complete waste of time and a complete failure. So would that have been a function of uh, biting more than you could chew? Potentially, and it's probably also pride and fear going you're giving up on this stable lifestyle and then having put yourself in a precarious position and also especially if you've got an idea which if you're putting something out into the world and saying actually i've got an idea which i think is really important Mm -hmm. and in the beginning everyone thinks you're a little bit crazy to be proposing anything but it's that tenacity to keep doing it to figure out what was wrong with the initial idea and to adjust it to refine it to find somebody else who believes in the idea and then to get somebody else who believes in the idea. Mm-hmm. Eventually getting through that the mud in you know, that some sense until eventually you, I guess, break through that and get to the other side. So at which point did it start feeling like not a failure anymore? And you, you knew you were onto something and you just powered through? I'm not sure. There was a couple of stages. I guess the I guess first stage was when I went and did photography. And that was incredibly fun because suddenly I had my freedom back and I was roaming around the countryside taking photos. But at the same time, feeling that, is this sustainable? Like, how long can I take photos for? Or the physical demands of doing that? Like, what happens when you get sick, your entire business stops? Mm-hmm. And so pretty soon I jumped into these ideas of, I always felt that I wanted to do something online. I was looking around, I was watching photographers particularly. Um, they were early adopters of online technologies. They were writing blogs, making videos, doing all these things. So I very quickly got drawn into this other world. So if I'd stuck in photography, I probably should have done that as well. Mm-hmm. And then it took several years to actually try to get a platform up. And that was trying to learn how to code, trying to how to do something that you know I didn't even think I was able to do or should be doing. And so in reality, it's probably in the last couple of years, especially this year now, as we see Malibu starting to flourish and we see it spreading around the world, where we're going, okay, this momentum is not me constantly turning the wheel. Momentum is these people using it mm-hmm. and now spreading the word and I'm more taking a step back and letting it run and that's that's probably the point where I'm going, okay, I can now breathe because I'm no longer treating water and it's starting to have a life of its own. So when was Bowerbird launched? Bowerbird was technically launched two years ago, but we went through a process. So we, we started off with a prototype probably four to five years ago mm-hmm. and had a terrible name and we we launched it and it had traction, but I had built it on WordPress, so a blogging platform, if you can believe that. <laughs> but we just hacked some things together yeah. to try and get the idea up as best we could. We didn't have funding. We, you know, we went to Google. We, we basically said, what's the best way we can do to solve this problem? And then we spent a year and a half rebuilding that. So that's that period where you're dedicating way more time to doing something which isn't 
giving you an income and trying to survive doing whatever it is that you're doing in between times. Mm -hmm. And eventually we relaunched, but with this whole new idea of creating a social network platform, way more complex, way more moving parts, but at the same time felt like that was the right decision. So in the last two years, uh, assuming you started at zero or thereabouts, how many users do you have now, active users? Uh, we're up to about 3,000 people using the platform. And that's between architects, journalists, photographers. It's a nice little community. Yeah, it's a good community. It's good. And it's past that point where it's just um, a couple of us talking to each other. It's now starting to feel like cities are coming on board. So um, we're getting to the last few minutes of the interview, and I want to get into uh, slightly more intellectual questions. And the next one um, is if you picture yourself, hopefully many, many years from now, on your deathbed, what would be the legacy you would have liked to leave? At this point, with what I'm working on, I would like to see, I'd like to see cities come on board and to tell more stories around architecture. And I'd like to see whether or not this hypothesis that telling stories actually changes architecture within cities is true. And if that hypothesis is true, then what we'll see is all these communities, so for example, we've just come out of Vancouver with all these architects um, wanting to publish stories which have been hidden away. If I was to look back and say, you know what, that city now has double the amount of architecture or there's just better quality design. And we go from, especially cities which are, let's call them vanilla architecture, mm -hmm. when you start mapping out the entire world and you see that there are some cities that have no architectural culture at all. We could see change there where there's a handful of architects who started telling stories and that led to change at a city level. Mm -hmm. That would feel like a pretty amazing journey to have gone through and to, um, to actually be a part of. So is uh, the city the basic size community you want to work on? Not no region or country, the city is kind of the nucleus of Bowerbird? I mean, we're still figuring this out as we travel around uh, to different cities, but we've figured out so far that cities tend to be these isolated communities, even though architects overlap between different cities. There tends to be a community, a hierarchy, a, a structure there at a city level, which you don't see necessarily at a national level. Mm -hmm. And so that makes more sense. At the same time, you also see different groups that sort of permeate a much larger region. So Passive House, for example, is one of those. So we're not necessarily governed by one way or the other, but definitely at the moment we see that cities are really interesting like that. Mm -hmm. And it's probably easier for us to think about. If you think about trying to create communities all over the world, it's very hard just to think of it as one huge blob. It's much easier to think about it and go, okay, we know that this thing works in this city. Mm -hmm. um, so it's probably just... But the next city over might need something completely different. Yeah, so for example, we're... Um, and you might have overlap as well. So having been in Vancouver, we also started talking to people in Seattle because they share similar magazines. They're actually quite close in um, geography, mm -hmm. even though there's a you know, national border between them. Mm -hmm. And so we see some of those connections. But at the same time, they're, they're going to have their own individual communities, their own photographers, their own newspapers. And so it makes sense to for us, at least at this point, to think about it city by city. So going back to the idea of legacy, is there something personal you'd like to accomplish? I'd like to design a building again before I, um, <laughs> before I don't have a chance to do that anymore. But that's just a personal, you know, a joy to do that. But I think at the moment I feel pretty satisfied with the adventure that I'm on. And it's hard to know where that actually leads. Mm -hmm. Like we wake up each day at the moment super excited. It kind of feels like we're drinking cool sometimes. <laughs> we roam around the countryside and, you know, we've just come out of 40 meetings in one city and 
we're just meeting all these excited people. And the more people we meet, the more excited we get. And that kind of feels like, I'm not sure what that leads to exactly, but it feels like that's part of that, whatever you might call legacy. Or That's also how you create a community, right? That's very interesting. And maybe one day you get to design the Bowerbird HQ, yeah, beautiful be, campus somewhere yeah. in Australia. That would be cool. Um, Stones or Beatles? Um, Beatles. Why is that? Uh, I've just never really listened to the Stones all that much. I think I just grew up around the Beatles more often. Well, thanks, Nick, for being on the show. It was uh, great talking to you. And uh, I hope the listeners enjoy it as much as I do. Yeah, thank you for having me. Again, Arno here. If you like this interview, be sure to give us a review on SoundCloud or iTunes. This episode was produced by Revelator Studio, edited by Ryan Akhtari, with music by Bounce Trio. To be notified of upcoming episodes, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Revelator underscore TO, or sign up for our newsletter on our website at rvltr.studio. Keep on supporting creativity and never stop kicking fear in the nuts. Till next time, ciao.